Romans chapter 11, verse 16. We've been talking all month about getting the Lord's banquet hall ready for the harvest. Because this is not about me. It's not even about us per se. It's about a growing family. It's so exciting to see more children. Uh, it's amazing to me how this congregation is growing in so many ways. So we have to facilitate that growth. By, by nature, when our family is growing, we immediately start talking about a new apartment. Instead of a one-bedroom, go to two-bedroom, three-bedroom, get a home. Because we have to facilitate the growth. Same thing as a church family. And one of the things that we learn to do is we need to, we need to learn to think transgenerationally. It's not just for this generation, but those little children in the future, they'll be pastors, they'll be ministers, worship leaders. Uh, some of them will be professionals. Some will go into elected office. Some will, will serve the city and the nation uh, in the medical uh, industry. Some will have business. And so we need to prepare a place for them. Amen. Amen. And when we start thinking transgenerationally, that's when God really starts giving us the big revelations, the big wisdom. When we start thinking like he thinks, because he thinks transgenerationally. Right now he's thinking about your great-grandchild. Yeah, he's, he's already planning for your great-grandchild's ministry. And for those people that you have shared the love of the Lord Jesus Christ with, they have come to the Lord. He's thinking about their great-grandchildren. He's thinking about our natural and spiritual children. Amen. So I'm excited about that. I'm part of that process. The word of the Lord reads as follows. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. So what we think about first, what we do first, what we ponder about first, that will determine the rest. That will determine the fruit. The root determines the fruit. In our American numerical system, we understand that very well because our numerical system is based on tens, multiples of tens. You go to 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 9, 10. Then now we start thinking 10 plus 1, 10 plus 2, 10 plus 3, it's 11, 12, 13. Then 20 is just two tens and a 1, two tens and a 2. You saw that 10 is the tithe, or 10 is the first portion, and everything else is a multiple of that. And even in our walk with God, our walk with God is determined by what is first in our life, what is first in our heart. So we've been talking all month long about the first fruit and, and our relationship with God and what truly is first in our lives. What is truly first in our life will always manifest itself in our actions, in our likes, in the things that we celebrate, things that get us angry. Because if something's important about you, like somebody tampers with, you'll get angry and you want to bring change. You see, all, throughout all the United States, people passionate for change. But it's dependent upon what they think is important. Some it's the ecology. Some it's the economy. Some it's family. You could tell. Listen to a person just for five minutes and you could tell what's important to them. What's first in their life. Amen? Praise the Lord. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for this beautiful day. Lord, the beginning of a brand new week, Lord God. First of the new week. And we just submit this day in your hands. We ask that you direct our steps. I pray, Father, that you would even speak to us through your word. I pray, think through my mind, speak through my lips. Uh, Father, that your people might hear your principles, that they might embrace your principles, that they might make it uh, a priority in their lives, my God. And in doing so, I, I so appreciate, Lord God, that they're setting themselves up to be blessed by you, uh, to be significant people, 
not just important, but significant. So, Father, I thank you for it. We just submit this time in your hands in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, teach us now. We thank you for it. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. May be seated in God's presence. So, how much can God trust us? In Luke chapter 16, it makes it very clear that if we're unfaithful in the little, we will be unfaithful in much. Some people say, well, you know, I can't give anything now, or I can't serve now, I don't have any time. Whatever it may be, we're very stingy with what we have. We're stingy with who we are. Well, the Bible says when we're stingy now, we will be stingy when we prosper, or when we have more, or when we have influence. It says when we're faithful with that which is little, we will be faithful with much. See, that's the way God sees it, and by the way, he created us so he knows. If we're not faithful now, God then says, how can I trust to you the real true riches? He says, if I can't trust you with mammon, how can I trust you with the true riches? Then he makes a demarcation, sharp demarcation between what mammon is and what true riches are. Mammon was a word that they used for finance, money in those days. And Jesus spoke a lot about money. It's amazing. If you you look at uh, the things he taught, he taught a lot about money. Because he knew that that's where people's heart was. You know, what's important to people? In every generation, it usually revolves around money. And because money is a transfer. Money is uh, an, an ability to get the things you need, the things you want. You could share your agenda if you have a lot of money. Right now, the presidential candidates are busy asking. How many of you have received uh, email or mailing from some, some candidate that wants your money? It's not a bad thing. It's just that they need to be able to share their philosophy of leadership, their agenda, with the general population. And the way they do that is they buy ads. Anybody has bought an ad on TV lately here? No? Not a one? (laughs) All they cost is half a million dollars, quarter of a million, a million dollars, two million dollars. That's all. Well, how else are they going to get their message across? It's by using earthly mammon. Problem is, mammon or money can buy you love, but it can't buy you true love. It, it can buy you temporary influence, but it can't buy you permanent influence. As long as you have a lot of money, people will love you. People will come up to you and, and, and ask you for stuff. I was saying last week how it's not that good to hit the lotto the way they do it today. In other words, if I were to hit the lotto today, tomorrow the lotto company will take a picture of me. That's not a good thing. I want to be an anonymous lotto winner. But the point is, the system works out to, they will let you know who, you know, the world know who they are. So immediately when they finally know that you won the $94 million, your uncles, your aunts, your brethren and your sisterin, your second and third and fourth and fifth cousins will all come to visit you. The tax man coming too. Yeah, that's that's true. The the, the point is, your, your life will end as you know it. You will have to change. You'll have to disappoint a lot of people. You might have to move. So it buys you influence. They'll run at you, but the minute you lose your money, those very same people will never show up to see you again. Because who's not about them loving you is that they wanted some of that money. Because it's very important in our generation. It's very important in many generations. But what we need to understand is Jesus was saying, you're getting fooled by that. That's not the true riches. In Colossians 1.27, he says, here is the true riches. 
if I can trust you, I can then give you the true riches. What is the true riches? Christ in us, the hope of glory. When you could be God's witness in your generation, when God's wisdom flows through you, that's true riches. When he walks with you, that's the true riches. Because see, he's the owner of all the gold and the silver. He's the provider. He's the one that could give you a moment of grace. A moment of grace is all you need. A moment of favor is all you need. I'm going through a problem. Well, a moment of favor could connect you to the right person that could lead you to the right department, that could lead you to the right connection, that could get your answer taken care of. Another thing that most people don't realize, part of the true riches in you is somebody else's answer. Right here, you are an answer to me. I'm an answer to you. Serious. You are somebody's answer. Whenever you pray to God, God immediately goes, okay, my son, my daughter, let me send you over there because you are my answer to them. So that's part of the true riches. There are, there are talents in you, abilities, anointing, giftings, wisdom in you. And so when God can trust you, he will elevate that. See, the world thinks, oh, yeah, God's going to bless me. Well, let me get that Cadillac. Let me get that Beamer. Let me. No, 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 that's not where God's coming. That's just a thing. He said, if you seek me first, you'll get the things. And then after a while, you start getting a, a, a wisdom to understand how foolish many of these things are. I don't need a, a, a Ferrari. A good Chevy is good to me because it takes me from point A to point B. If you were to give me a Bentley tomorrow, and I mean this with all of my heart. If you give me a brand new Bentley, anybody knows what a Bentley is? That's like for the uber rich. Yeah, yeah, the uber rich driving a Bentley. You know what I would do? I would immediately thank you for it, and then I'd sell it to the highest bidder. And then buy me, I don't know, a Toyota. And take the rest of the money and buy me a house. That's what I would do, because I'd be so afraid to have a Bentley out in the street. You can't have a Bentley in the street. You have to put it in a garage and pay somebody to take care of that thing. On the lock and key. That's true. They'll, they'll mess it up right in the garage. You see my point? So some things really aren't good for us. But God starts teaching us what's good for you. What's the wisdom of God. Instead of us getting caught up with so much nonsense. So there's a difference between the things that we seek and the true riches. How can God trust us with the true riches if he cannot trust us with the natural small little things? That's one of the reasons why as a church we get together once a year and we release the first fruit to God. It's a challenge to ourselves. We reboot every single year. We do it on purpose. We say, Lord, we're going to give you the first fruit. We're going to give you a special offering just in honor of who you are and also in recognition of who we are. Money doesn't rule us. We rule money. We had about five people say amen. amen. No, seriously, you've got to get to that place. And I told you before, I'm going to tell you again, the year 2012, it's going to be a difficult year. Many challenges, but there's also the wisdom of God in this year. So I believe some of you, as you apprehend the wisdom of God, you're going to get out of debt. You're going to finally realize the credit card companies are not your friends. You're going to start living in your means. And in living in your means, now you're going to have more resources for the things that are very important for you, for your family, for your children. I mean, I much rather not have latte, mochaccino, you know, whatever you call them. Just have a regular coffee and save the extra money and put my child through school. Okay, all right. I got seven amens now. So now we're, we're, we're going in the right direction. 
Yeah, but we get caught up with so many of these things and we lose the priority. And when we go God first, what happens is now we become real producers. We become investors. Jesus said, utilizing the parable of the talents, he said, uh, well, there once was a Lord that gave three men uh, the equivalent of gold. One talent was a heavy weight of gold. The other guy, he gave him two talents, two pieces of heavy gold, the equivalent of three to four hundred thousand dollars. And then one guy who had much experience, he gave him five pieces of gold. He told him, he says, now go trade with that. When I come back, I want to see some multiplication. I, I want to see what you're going to do with my talents. He never called it their talents. He always said, my talent. So the three servants went out and they did what they do. The first guy who had five talents went out to, to industry, bought buildings, invested some money in the CDs, uh, you know, a couple of ETFs, you know, uh, bought, a, bought a little business over here. When his Lord came back, he said, what did you do with my five talents? Well, well, here's your five talents back. But here's another five talents for you. He said, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in these few things. Now I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you more influence. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So he was saying that God was testing him with natural substance. He was testing him here on earth with natural, tangible things. And that guy, since he understood it really wasn't his, he used it properly. He didn't misuse the talent. He used it correctly. Point. What about what God has placed in your hand? I don't have anything. God doesn't give me. Yeah, he's giving you a voice. He's giving you talents, abilities. Some of you can sing. Some of you have influence. Some of you have, have administrative ability. Some of you are excellent speakers. Some of you can tell a story like nobody else can. Well, except for Jesus. Jesus was the master storyteller. You know, storytellers rule the world. The one that can tell the story best will get the job. He'll get the sale. But we have that, and yet we think it's ours exclusively to waste as we desire. Many people start in the church, they have an exceptional gift, and after a while they take it to the world, make a fortune, forget about God. But here's what happened. The second guy who had two talents did the same thing, multiplied it to four talents, and the, the master was pleased. But the third guy who had one talent, he took the talent, hid it, didn't use it. When the Lord came back, he said, what did you do with my talent? He said, well, I, I know you're a hard man, and you wanted, some, you know, you wanted it multiplied. and uh, you know, I hid it. Here's your talent back. And you know what the Lord said about him and about him only? He said this. He said, wicked and lazy servant. You could have at least put it in the bank. It would have gotten the interest. But you totally misused the talent. So in looking at that, Jesus was training us and showing us that what you do on a daily basis is in fact very, very important and very, very vital. And it's qualifying you for the next level. It's qualifying you for the higher dimensions of influence where God wants to take us. And what most people don't realize is God doesn't need me. Yes, he does. In the book of Genesis, God made, he created man. He says, now man, I give you authority here in this earth realm. Anything that happens will happen through man. I, almighty God, declare that. And what you don't understand about God is when he declares a thing, it becomes law on earth and in heaven. And God himself submits to the very law that he creates. So here on earth, who's in charge? Man. Well, God's in charge. Uh, mm, hello, man is in charge because God made him in charge. So now here's the next point. He then holds us 
accountable to the creation because he put us in charge. We are the managers. We are the stewards. So whatever you do is vital. It's very important. Well, I'm just a little person. Well, you don't understand also. There's another principle in scripture that says, don't despise the day of small beginnings. Because everything begins with a seed. You began with a seed. Business begins with seed. A home begins with a seed. What's the seed? Well, the seed is you put some seed money away. You get an architect and you draw upon his seed knowledge. And he starts drawing things for you. It starts at that seed level and then from there it grows. You are vital. You are necessary. And when God's going to do something, you know what he does? He inspires us to get it done on earth. Because everything that's done here has to be done through a man or a woman through mankind I don't know if I believe that well why do you think that almighty God had to clothe himself with flesh live here for 30 years die on a cross that sounds foolish to the average mind who does not understand the importance of an almighty God who is faithful to his word God is so faithful to his word that when he saw man into sin he loved him so much that there was no other option than for him to create a perfect man who had never sinned to be the atonement for every other man. The problem is every, every man that was born was always born in sin because he was born from the Adamic nature. And so God has principles that he abides by. One is the principle of justice and holiness. If you sin, you cannot have relationship with Almighty God. The problem is all men sinned. When Adam broke that covenant with Almighty God, he entered into a place of disobedience and disconnection with Almighty God. So every time they were going to go before God, they, they, they would give God a sacrifice. And then after that, they sin again. They have to give another sacrifice. And throughout the history, you see how man was in his relationship always very tenuous. So God says, I myself will go down there and I'll take care of business. So he became flesh dwelt among us in John chapter 1 he became the light of the world lived the life as a man died on the cross for you and for me but man did it but God did it <laughs> but in this case it was a man on earth who satisfied the righteous requirements of almighty God you see so everything on earth that we do is vital it's very important there is no such thing as downtime so, so to speak there is no such thing as vacation from the importance that you have in your, in your relationship with humanity. Oh, how dare the president go to golfing when we have a problem in China, when we have a problem in the Strait of Hormuz, when we have this issue and that issue. Well, you know what? While he's on vacation, the whole staff goes with him because his responsibility is so important that even when he's on vacation, he's still working. Well, I'm not a president. Well, you're influential somewhere. So even when you're on vacation, you have to worry about your children. You can't just drop everything off the map. You are vital. You are influential. You are important. And that's what God is trying to get to his people. And But most of us, we walk through life half somnambulant. How you doing? Oh, same old, same old. 
No, it's not the same old, same old. You're wasting something so vital. Somebody needs you. Somebody needs your wisdom. Somebody needs your ministry. Well, I'm not a pastor. It doesn't make a difference. We're all ministers of reconciliation. Hallelujah. Amen. So in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul, who had that revelation, he said this, listen, Timothy, my son in the faith, it's vital that we touch as many people as possible, that we minister to as many people as possible. So here's what I want you to do. I've trained you. I've let you walk with me. You have been able to travel with me. Now I want you to take everything that you've learned, everything that you heard me say, Every bit of ministry that I've given to you, I want you now to take that and impart it on faithful men. And they will be able to train others also. Jesus never built a cathedral. Jesus never ministered to more than maybe 5,000 people at a time. That's a lot of people. But he did that maybe once or twice. Most of the time, he dedicated his life to 12 guys. Most of the time, Jesus poured himself out into 12 men. You know, I don't know the kicker on this. One of them was a devil. Not the devil, just a devil. And he knew about it, and he still poured himself in, giving them an opportunity. Yet the man still decided to do what he needed to do. You know, Judas Iscariot. And so... We get offended or hurt by one person, and that's it. No more. I'm not going to help nobody else. I'm not going to minister to anybody else. I'm not going to preach anymore because that one person, uh, excuse me, Jesus did it. And it didn't stop him from helping others. But isn't it interesting that in Jesus pouring his life to 12 men, the whole world, over and 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 over again, has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because those 12 men did the same thing, and they poured themselves out into other men and women. Read the book of Acts, and you'll see how men and women received the message from them. They went through all of Asia Minor, and within 21 years, Asia Minor was all ministered to. 12 guys. So I say this because most of us want the limelight. Oh, no, 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 no. My ministry's got to be big, 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 big. i got to have a big ministry. Excuse me, a big ministry is touching one person. Who touched Billy Graham? Who touched T.D. Jake? Who ministered to them? They got a big crown in heaven. See, so a big ministry is the one that you finally realize that you have from Almighty God. How is it going to look like? You might minister to 10,000 people. You might minister to two people at a time. Who cares? It's your ministry. Do your best. But the point is, manifest it. Do it. Jesus never built a cathedral. But yet the 12 men touched all of Asia Minor. Wow. So then Paul told Timothy, now, everything you've heard of me, now that teach faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Watch. And I say this for those that haven't heard this yet. Who was the one that reached out to Paul? It was actually Jesus. Yeah, because basically Saul was, uh, Paul was Saul of Tarsus. This guy was a persecutor of the church. He was a zealot. He was an extremist in, of sorts. And he'd go out and imprison Christians. Some people died during his leadership. And one day he's on his horse with a couple of guys, and Jesus gives him a divine revelation. Knocks him off his horse. He gets blinded right at the moment, and he hears... 
Paul or Saul, Saul, why dost thou persecute me? And he said, who is this? He says, uh, the Lord, you're persecuting me. Now, isn't it interesting? He wasn't persecuting Jesus. Jesus wasn't in the earth realm anymore. He was sitting in the right hand of the Father. So why did Jesus say, why are you persecuting me? Because one time in Jesus' earthly ministry, he said, if you give a cup of water to one of these little ones, it's like if you're doing it to me. If you visit one of my little people in the hospital, it's like if you're doing it to me. If you visit one of my people who are in prison, it's like if you're doing it to me. He takes it very personal. Oh, no, no, so now this takes a different connotation. So when you now minister to those little ones in your block, those little ones on the job, those little ones in your community, it's like if you're doing it to Jesus. Hallelujah. So Paul told Timothy, Timothy, you know, Jesus taught me this. So suddenly he was, you are the Lord? The, I've been persecuting them, and yet, oh. So he turned into the greatest evangelist in his day. And then what a prolific writer. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. My God. But it's because he caught the revelation. He caught the importance of being a witness for Almighty God. And then he put God first in his life, and his life changed. And forget about history. History changed too. But what can God do through you? What can God do in you? So we need to transition this year. We need to start understanding this principle, the Paul-Timothy principle, which is he poured himself into uh, Timothy. He said, Timothy, now you go out there and you train others. Watch this. So Jesus taught Paul. Paul then teaches Timothy. Timothy teaches Faithful men who then teach others. There's five generations right there. Right there, five generations of leadership happening. So here's what happens. In the old days, we thought that church was all about me coming every once in a while and visiting. You know, okay, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to church, all right? You know, my mom's been at me so much. Oh, okay, I'm going to go to church. All right, I'll go to church. So you sit down and you endure two hours, you know, and, and pastor does this and pastor does that and pastor does that. And that's it. You're out. You satisfied the requirement. Uh, your mother made you come to church uh, for Easter or whatever, right? Though you satisfied that. You don't have to come back. Good. I don't have to come back till Christmas now. Christmas. I'm all right till Christmas. Unless she pushes you for Thanksgiving, right? So we think and we learned and our, our parents taught us and culture taught us that church is something that you visit and the pastor and maybe two or three people do all of it. They do all the preaching. They, all, they do all the teaching. They do all the visiting. They do all the ministering. They do it all. And you just come every once in a while. You benefit from it and leave your, your, your Christian dollar and that's it. And of course, church all, uh, lives by one dollar, of course. We buy real estate with one dollar. We feed the poor with one dollar. We buy Bibles. It only costs us one dollar. <laughs> oh yeah, I say that because so many people criticize the church because the church is always asking for money. Excuse me, this week, President Obama came into town and if you wanted to sit down with him and have a chicken dinner, you pay, uh, what, $250, $38,000, a plate. What's in that plate? That's what I would like to know, what's in that plate? I'll tell you something, if all of you gave $38,000 to the church today, we'd have our building tomorrow. <laughs> and his goal is to reach six to seven to eight hundred million dollars, maybe a billion dollars. Why? For his agenda. We understand that. It's no criticizing. But the minute the church wants to sell a chicken dinner, the minute the church wants to ask for a $5 love donation for a picture, 
People always asking for money. Always asking, always asking for money. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, is that as a community, we come together and do what the Lord has called us to do. But here you have five generations. What are we doing to teach others? And here's the problem. If the pastor or the elder or the welder doesn't go out and do the teaching and the preaching and the driving of the bus and visiting the people in the hospital and, 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 and you know, doing all sorts of things and marrying them and burying them, immediately we get angry because the man or the woman of God and the pastor or the elder did not show up and do this. It's a mistake. Paul told Timothy, that's a bad concept. And to correlate that in the Old Testament, God spoke to Moses. So Moses, I want you to lead my people. Over 2.5 million people. So you know what was happening? Every single day people were coming to Moses' office. And he'd sit down and he would take care of their problems one by one by one. Have you ever had any staff here? Anybody here? Have you ever had staff? Supervise? How many? How many have staff here? Six? Okay. All right. How many? Two staff? Okay. Anybody? 20? Okay, okay. How about half a million? How about a million? How about 2.5 million people that you're responsible for? Well, so Moses, doing the only thing he knew, he'd sit down and listen to every problem. He'd deal with every issue, one by one. So all day long, there was a huge line wanting to speak to the man of God. So one day, Moses' father-in-law goes to him and says, Moses, what you're doing is wrong. You're hurting the people because they're waiting all day and they're getting tired. And you're hurting yourself. You're wearing yourself out. This is what you're going to do. Take 70 men, pray over them, train them, raise them up, and let them do the day-to-day -day things. And you dedicate yourself to the big-ticket items. And Moses says, you know, that's a good idea. <laughs> but then the scripture says that God inspired Jethro to speak to him. It was a divine inspiration. Moses didn't know it. He honestly was doing what he knew. And he was burning himself out, and he was burning out the people. So what happened was, is in the New Testament, now they have that revelation, and Paul's saying, Timothy, if we're going to touch the world, we're going to have to raise up as many leaders and release them as quick as possible. So in this year, where we've dedicated ourselves in the church here, we have a group of leaders because we want to touch as many people as possible. We want to shift from the one man does everything to a leadership principle that is in Scripture. So what we've done is we've raised up the ministers, you know the ministers. How many here know the ministers? Where are the ministers? Raise your hands. Ministers, raise your hands. So now I'm multiplied in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. A couple of, uh, ten. We have two that are out. Um, uh, Minister Lewis is back. It's hurting, so he stayed home. So we have like 10, 11, 12, right? You know how much work we can get done now? And now what's their job? Everything I've taught them. Everything I've, they've seen me do, in their own way now, they now train others. So within one to three years, if there's 13 or 14 ministers, there's now going to be 30 or 40 ministers. What can we do with 40 ministers? We're doing the same thing, preaching, teaching, uh, laying on of hands, ministry. What can we do? Well, train another. The other 40 could train maybe uh, four or five at a time, and now we can have 200 ministers. What can 200 ministers do? You understand my point? And that's where God has taken us. He's taken us to the place where all of us are growing up in him. Now, do I preach like Nate? 
If I preached like Nate, I would break my hip. Because that man has an energy that I, I no longer have. But I don't care. I want him to do out-preach me, to out-minister. I want him to do much better than me. Because my importance is helping him to be great. And if I can think that way and understand that, then I have something that I need to deposit upon people. Now God says, oh, now he's got it. Now I can pour in him the eternal stuff. Come on, somebody praise him. Hallelujah. And this, this will not happen unless we put God first, unless we start understanding. Because otherwise, it's about us. It's about me. Now, you know and I know churches have been criticized. You know and I know that there are churches out there that their ministers are doing very well. And the church, is, the church takes care of it, buys, them the, the, buys the pastor their Cadillac, they live in a mansion, they have a yacht, uh, they have an airplane. You know, I don't want to criticize those ministries. Each one of them, they do their own thing. But the United States has criticized many of these ministers. I don't criticize them because, at least for some of them, I know that the church doesn't pay them. They have their own business, and they're rich. They're actually very rich. They buy their own plane. It's not the church that buys the plane. They buy their own plane. Uh, a good example, um, you know Osteen, the, the, young, the young preacher Osteen? They asked him the other day on, on TV. They asked him, you know, what about uh, you know, your salary? You got a lot of money. You know? He says, well, uh, my, the church doesn't pay me a salary. See, he sells books. He goes out and does conferences, and, and it's, it's his ministry. It's his business. And I, and I say, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? If I'm a plumber, hey, I could, I could get my license, and I could do very, very well. I could make two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000 a year. But as a minister, we can't, just as long as we put God first. So my point is, I'm not going to judge that. I don't know, but God will know whether they are real or not. But I do know, I do know it has caused problems. Because we think as a church, the church should be a conservative thing. You, you shouldn't see too much boasting, too much of that. So uh, in my case, I would, run, I would prefer to remain more conservative. What's that? Much of that comes from the fact that the church is supposed to feed the poor. And if you remember, what was uh, Judas Iscariot's greatest criticism? When that lady went and gave a lavish offering to Jesus, she broke open that bottle of nard, a spike nard, and then she cleaned his feet with it. What was the greatest criticism that uh, Judas Iscariot had? Hey, it cost 300 denarii. We could have fed the poor with it. But in reality, the scripture reveals that Judas Iscariot was not interested in feeding the poor. He wanted to steal some of that money because he was actually stealing from the treasury. So God, or rather Jesus himself, didn't have a problem with her lavishing him a great on him a great offering. She says, she's preparing me for my burial. He had no problem with it. He blessed her. He did have a problem, however, with Judas Iscariot's you know, uh, false and ulterior motives. Amen. So yeah, it's a, it's a good point. But in truth, yes, we're supposed to be feeding the poor. Yes, but if, let's say, let's say my family gave me a uh, billion dollars and I bought a nice house with it, people will criticize me, oh, rich man. But yet, some, some of these millionaires, they have a place where they put money and feed the poor. 
wealthy. So there are people that are righteous, even with money. Scripture says, if you are rich, be rich in good works. That's what it actually says. It doesn't say uh, throw the money away. No, it says be rich in good works. So that's, what, again, putting God first. So as a church, what do we do? We ascribe to the principle of putting God first. If you look at the Old Testament, the tree, what did God say to Adam and Eve about the tree in the center of the garden? Don't touch it, it's mine. What did God say to uh, the people of God when they were taking Israel, when they were taking the land? He said, I'm going to give you all, but give me one city. One city belongs to me. Don't touch it. See, he's always challenged us to put him first. So as a congregation this year, one of the first things we're going to do is we're going to rededicate our hearts. We're going to put him first. The second thing we're going to do, we're going to value each and every one of us because each and every one of us are important. What's your ministry? Is it more important than mine? Is my, my ministry more important than yours? No. We're all vital. We're all very important. The third thing we're going to do this year in putting God first is we're going to practice the principle of honor and forgiveness. Have you offended me before? Yes. Have I offended you before? Double yes. But we're going to forgive each other and keep on walking. I got like five amens there. Well, you know, I've been married with my wife for 33 years. And, hey, man, I, that's, that's worthy of a clap. You don't know my wife? She's the lady way back there. Wave, honey. That's Pastor Gwendolyn right there. And we've never had an argument. We've never gotten angry at each other. We've never offended each other. We've never fought. And I'm a big, fat liar. <laughs> See, our ability to remain together has nothing to do with us never offending each other. Our ability to remain together is our ability to argue the point, bring it to its conclusion, understand that we're already on the same side so I don't have to win every argument. My goal is not to win every argument with her. I've already stopped doing that. <laughs> I've tried long enough in the past. My goal now is to reach a consensus because we're already one. We're already in the same home together. We already, uh, um, we've decided that. When we got married, I do meant everything I have, everything I will ever have, I will share it with her. So we already won. I don't have to now win every argument. There's some positions she has that are better than mine. Many positions that she has are better than mine. So what we do is we live together, we work together, we serve together, we enjoy our life together, we still go dating. Yeah, that's right, I still go dating. They don't have a great time. A couple of weeks, we might take a couple of weeks out, just act like teenagers. Yeah, absolutely. Date all over again. We keep on rediscovering our relationship. And it's a wonderful thing. We'll continue living together. And our goal is, you know, like we said, uh, when we got married, till we die. But as a church family, it should be very similar. You know why? We're all the body of Christ. But we're also the bride of Christ interesting concept but we are Jesus's bride the church is so we already won I don't have to be fighting with you if I disagree in a point we need to learn how to disagree and then agree to disagree in other words just because I don't agree with me uh, with you does not mean that I'm 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 offending you we need to get over ourselves right 
Okay, well, I, I got, I, I, you send me an amen. Brother, I'll take that amen because everybody else is looking at me. So what are you talking about? <laughs> no, the truth of the matter is that in any relationship, invariably, we will offend each other. We will hurt each other. So the key to victory is being able to then come and discuss it, come to a resolution, and keep on walking. Hallelujah. But that takes anointing. That takes loving God first. Because if, if you get in the flesh, I know you're going to tell me off, and I'm going to tell you off right back again. See, but so we have to grow beyond that and say, okay, you know, it was hurtful, painful. Let me share with you why this hurt me, and let's keep on walking together. You know why? I value you too much. And you're so valuable that I cannot take you to a place where you'll be so hurt where you, you know, leave the things of God. I don't want that. So I'll do whatever it takes to try to love you back. Have you ever been offended here? Ah, oh, man. Man. We should call this church the church of the first offense or something like that. Wow. Now we put God first. And the reason why we do that is because first and foremost, he asks for it. And the reason why he asks for it is because he's married to us. God doesn't do shacking up. God only marries. He covenants with us. And he gives us his best. <laughs> Hallelujah. So when he gives, he gives the best. What did he do as he gave Jesus? Was that his best? That was the best in history. You can't get any better than that. He gave his best. So he asked that we do the same. And the thing is, we're the junior partner in this relationship. I cannot give God more than he can give me. Uh, let me change that. Everything that I have, he's given me. So when we give him something back, we're just giving him a portion of what he's blessed us with. What did he bless us with? With wisdom, with understanding. We're smart folk. I talk to some of you people, you're very educated. So he gives you wisdom. He gives you abilities. He gives you a, 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 an ability to mesh with this world, to, to make money. The Bible says in um, Deuteronomy 8.18, he gives us the power to acquire wealth. So many things he gives us. So what we do is we put him first. And we give him his portion. And in that relationship, he keeps on maturing us. He keeps on giving us more and more influence. But it's as a marriage. Hun. Do you, do you love me? See, I, I, I believe her. You know why I believe her? I can trust her. But in a church family, we also need to get to that place. And that is very, very difficult. Very difficult. And that comes from this. It comes from me first. Well, how am I going to trust anybody? Well, you then start sowing the seeds of trust. One person said it this way. Let me just read it here. I like the way this person said. A man decided that he would change the world, but he wasn't successful, so he decided to change the country. But he wasn't successful, so he decided to change his community. But he wasn't successful, so he decided to change his street. But he wasn't successful. So he decided to change his family. But he wasn't successful. 
So he decided to change himself. And he was successful. And his family changed, and they affected their street. And the people on the street affected their community. And the people of the community affected their country. And the people of the country affected the world. So as I draw this, this thought to a close, as a church family, we're supposed to be impacting each other. But it begins with us first. Well, in the church, there's so many hypocrites. Well, you stop being a hypocrite first. And you now will impact the other hypocrites. And they'll stop being a hypocrite because they're not seeing you being a hypocrite anymore. Yeah, there's too much gossip in the church. Well, you shut your mouth when you have a chance to gossip. And then you'll watch, they'll have to shut their mouth because you're not doing it anymore. What? No, I got, I got, you guys suddenly woke up. I I don't know what happened. (laughs) It all starts with us. Putting God first. And then holding ourselves accountable to acting as if Jesus was right there with us. Because guess what? He is. And so in my conversation with him, Jesus, I thank you for everything you give me. Help me to be the person you called me to be. And he answers us, yeah, of course I will. My spirit is there with you. I'm with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So as you go out there and you start changing and you start giving God first place in all of your dealings, then you're going to watch how God's going to start blessing you and how even your community is going to start changing. And even this ministry, and I told you before, there's been something just above us that has been holding us back for a season. And God has been holding the reservoir of influence so that we get ready for ourselves. Or rather, that we get get ready for the next season. Thank you. I got caught there a second. Some people say, well, why is God holding it back? I was asking God that. You know what he did? He sent me a prophetess uh, from Texas. Came to the city. She called me up. Her and her husband. Uh, We have to have dinner with you. I have a word of the Lord for you. Okay. So my wife and I, we went out, we sat down, the elders came with us. And she says, Okay, you ready for your word? I said, Yeah. The Lord says he's been keeping you hidden in a cleft of a rock. Remember the word? Remember that one? He's been keeping you hidden. But now he's going to start to expose the ministry. He's going to start to open it up again. He's been keeping you there because you have been going too fast. And he had to take some things back. Meanwhile, I was I was asking our God, what happened? Why in the world? So I had a thousand questions, believe me. So what he does, he answered me. He sent somebody that became an answer to me. He says, the Lord says, get ready, because now things are going to change. Now things are going to start to move. Now they're going to start to accelerate. Then then the Lord showed me how it's going to accelerate. It was going to accelerate in us first. So throughout all this period, we have been going through a transformation. God's been moving upon us. God's been moving within us. God's been preparing us. Because when 500 problems come into this place, I mean 500 people come into this place. Sorry, I, uh, I, don't, I don't know what happened. We're going to have to know how to deal with it. And the anointing of God that's on us is the answer. And they're coming to the right place. And we're not going to have time 
to be complaining or bickering or whatever it may be. We have to be on point. Amen. Praise the Lord. First fruit. Say, say, say to your neighbor, I'm putting God first. I'm going to let him. Come on. I'm going to let him activate my gift. I'm going to change. And as I change, then the community will change. My church family will change. 